Hello and welcome to Inside Music, episode number 55. Can you believe it? We're back to regular sound quality. I appreciate everyone who listened to last week's episode with my good buddy James Rhodes of Fixed Music. It was a great chat, and I, I appreciate everyone who put up with the weird introduction. It was strange to be recording from a hotel room in Egan, Minnesota, but we got through it, and we're back. I'm in Boston right now. My whole life is surrounding me. It's all packed up in boxes. I'm getting ready to make the move to Minneapolis here at the end of the month. But before that, we've got a couple episodes of the show to get through. Today's is pretty special. Now, if you follow the Holix blog, and I hope all of you do, holixdaily.com if you don't, you'll know that recently we posted our picks for the top albums of 2015, and one of the top three records on that list was from Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. It's titled Medicine. On today's show, I chat with Drew Holcomb himself about that record, as well as his 12-plus years in the music business. Drew, and I don't say this lightly, Drew is one of the greatest living singer-songwriters in America, and he might be the greatest independent singer-songwriter working in America today. His music is usually described as Americana, but there are elements of folk, country, western, rock and roll, all of that rolled into one here, as well as a lot of experimental ideas that come and go whenever he sees fit. Drew has an amazing history in the music business. He didn't even really get to the point where he was taking it seriously until college. And then he met his wife and they started working together. They formed Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. They put out a lot of great records and they built their name from nothing without really much, if any, backing of any kind. What's been the key to Drew's success, at least from my perspective as an outsider, has been twofold. The first is that he tours heavily. Some Sometimes he plays 400 shows when supporting a new release. Secondly, licensing. Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors are one of those groups that doesn't necessarily need to be a huge band at radio or the number one album on Billboard because they license their music a lot. Even if you don't think you've heard Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors before, there's a good chance that if you watch any popular television show over the last five years, you have at least heard a few seconds of something Drew has written appear within the episode. His most recent release, Medicine, has had more than 20 placements in the last year, and that's something that plays heavily into the conversation you're about to hear. Drew and I walk through his history in music, how he met his wife, how they came together in a creative standpoint. We get into the start of The Neighbors and how you know his career kind of took off. We cover licensing, we cover touring, we talk about medicine, we talk about the music festival Drew has, his philanthropy work. We cover the whole spectrum of Drew Holcomb. If, you've, if there's ever anything you wanted to know about this musician, it's probably in the 45 minutes that's about to happen. Before we get there, however, there's a few things I want to mention. First and foremost, the sponsor of this week's podcast is Holix, the internet's leading promotional distribution company. And what Holix does is it works with independent artists, record labels, and publicists around the globe to share unreleased music between music professionals ahead of its release date without fear of piracy or anything else terrible happening. Should a leak occur, Holix offers the tools needed to combat piracy, including a sweet automated takedown service that crawls the web for as long as you're a member of Holix and issues DMCA takedown notices without you having to lift a finger. It tracks all of this and it lets you know when links are removed. For more information on Holix and access to a free 30-day trial, visit www.holix.com. That's www.h-a-u-l-i-x.com. I also want to tell you about the podcast on Twitter. Yes, Inside Music is on Twitter. It's at Inside Music Pod or at Inside Music P-O-D. We post updates about guests who will be on the show soon, maybe snippets of things that were left out of the show, and just have some general conversation about the things that happen here on Inside Music. The following has been growing steadily week over week, and I hope to see that happen. Also, 
the Holix blog. I mentioned it at the top of the show. I'm going to mention it here again, holixdaily.com, H-A-U-L-I-X daily.com. That's where you can go to find anything you need to know about life in the music industry today. There are daily advice columns and editorials geared towards aspiring music professionals, both on the business side of things and on the artist side of things. So if you have any interest in getting involved in the music business, even help finding a job, holixdaily.com has the answer. Now, I think that's all the announcements I have for this episode, but I do want to tell you a little bit about the music you're going to hear. At the start of the show, we're going to play a song off Drew's most recent album, Medicine. I haven't chosen the song at the time of this recording, so just know that that song, quite possibly American Beauty, is going to be the opening song this week. The closing song is a song that you'll later hear me tell Drew is actually my favorite track of his, and it's called The Wine We Drink. It's a love song off his last record, Good Light. And yeah, I, I think that these two tracks really showcase what Drew's doing these days and why people love his music so much. There's a relatability to the songs that you just, it's just hard to come by it today. And yeah, I think that's everything you need to know to get into this conversation. Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors are going on tour at the end of February. They have a record club, the Magnolia Record Club, you can sign up for online. They have a music festival, the Moon River Music Festival. And who knows, maybe there'll be some more music released this year. I, I don't know, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. But without further ado, here is Drew Holcomb from Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors chatting with me, James Shotwell. Thank you so much for listening. She was a good companion Eyes like the Grand Canyon She was an American beauty She was a long goodbye She was the best I lived by She was an American beauty With her wafers on in the summer sun Her touch felt like a loaded gun Wish I had held her long Wish I had held her long. So, uh, I don't know, let's, let's start simple. We'll probably kind of work our way through uh, your life and get to where we are now and where you're going in the future. Uh, yeah, no, no real guidelines on anything, so feel free to ramble as much as you want, and uh, we'll make it, we'll, you know, we'll fix it all in the post. Okay, so, I take it you're, so you said you're home now in Tennessee? Yep. All right. Are you, is that where you're born? Is that like is Tennessee? Yes, home? I was. I was, uh, I was born in Memphis, okay, uh, on the west side of the state. <clears throat> Lived there until I went to college uh, across the other side of the state in Knoxville, and then kind of bounced back and forth between those two after college for a little while, and then ended up in Nashville in about 2006, uh, right, uh, right before I got married to Ellie, my wife. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I knew that you still lived there. I just didn't know if that was uh, where you kind of started, where you had started your life. It's rare that you meet someone that kind of like grew up in the same state they live in now, and you don't really seem to have ever moved out of the state. No, the only time I left was uh, I lived in Scotland for six months in, uh, when I was a college student, and then um, probably another couple of months, years later, I went there to, to, to work on a graduate degree, which is kind of random and somewhat unrelated to my career, but um, so besides those two kind of, you know, adventures, yeah, I've lived in the state, but even before I started doing music, by the time I went to college, I had been to, I think, 37 states. So, oh, wow. Um, it was always a home base. It was never, I never <laughs> stayed put very long here. So. What, what had you on the road so much as a child, as a young person? Uh, my dad loved to travel. So we had a big conversion van and four kids. And every year for 
twice a year for like 10 days, he would take off uh, work through the dentist. And so we would just, he would like map out like, okay, we're going to go to the Northeast for 10 days and see all the sites. And then we're going to go out to Colorado or do California or do the Northwest. And he just kind of had this insatiable curiosity for uh, being on the road. And so it kind of bled into all of his kids, which was great. Yeah, so you yeah, you're, you you were a road dog before you even knew what that was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when did music come into the picture? Like was there someone in your family that played music that got you into it or how did that develop? I'd say it was really kind of three things. Um I mean, just like any you know, kid growing up uh in the in the 90s you're exposed to all kinds of music for me that was a lot of that was on those road trips, you know, we listened to obviously a lot of music. My parents were big fans of like Motown and Bob Dylan and kind of a lot of the, a lot of like kind of classic 70s, you know, songwriter, rock and roll. And then uh, the second thing was my mom played piano and uh, she, that, our alarm clock for school was her playing kind of like classic gospel hymns on the piano uh, pretty much every day. Um not, not, not maybe four days a week, you know, um, just depending on whether she had the time. She'd, you know, bang out a few songs on the piano and then it was time to wake up and go to school. Um, so this is the first two. And then the third was I had a best friend in uh, middle school and high school. It was just a, kind of an early, uh, a, you know, one of those early musical minds. And he, he, was, yeah. he already played guitar by the time he was in the eighth grade. Um, or really sixth grade. And, and by the time we were in the eighth grade together, we would, you know, once or twice a week go over to each other's house and just sit and play guitar all afternoon. And, you know, those are really kind of the three, I guess the three introductions. And then in college, it all kind of exploded for me in terms of my, my interest in music, um, a lot of concerts and, and starting to kind of dabble with writing my own songs. Yeah, were you one of those uh, young young creative minds who wanted to be, like sing and play guitar? Were you like, I'm just going to play guitar and maybe I'll get into a band? Or was it always a, like a singer songwriter thing for you? Honestly, yeah, it was more. It was honestly a singer songwriter thing, but it wasn't necessarily a, a, a. At first, it was it was just playing guitar was kind of a way to kind of I don't know relax in a way and kind of disengage the you know the stress of college or whatever high school. Yeah you know, to pine away about your lost love or whatever, you know, when, <laughs> yep, yep. when, you're, when you're young and, and your heart is uh, easily entangled, you know. Uh, but then I started writing songs in, in college and that really kind of came out after I'd been introduced to some of the kind of really, I don't know, kind of the really kind of complex and subtle songwriters, people like Patty Griffin and Ryan Adams and, um, Towns and Zant, and all of a sudden it kind of opened up a new, a new window into what songwriting could be. And I always knew I didn't have like, you know, a, a radio voice, and I never really okay. thought of myself as a singer, even well into my career, before I realized that I was that I was a singer. So, which is a whole other story. But, um, so that was really, I, never, I honestly did not have ambitions of being a touring recording artist until it had already started. So it was a, initially it was kind of a diversion from what was probably going to be a lot more school after college. Yeah. What did you, I know you went to the university of Tennessee, but what did you initially go for? 
uh, I wanted to be a history professor. Okay. Is that what you were going to so get? Was, is that what you were going to yeah. go back to Scotland for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to go back to school, um, try to get a, you know, PhD in, in history and, um, just started this thing. I, but basically I had a lot of, uh, I had a couple of good friends. Um, they're older than me mentors, I guess would be the, the right word who kind of encouraged me to, um, take a break from school. I, I finished, I, I loved school. I was kind of a, a nerd. I finished college a little early. And so I had some time and instead of jumping right back into more school, they, they kind of encouraged me to take a break and, you know, kind of go see the world a little bit. So in my mind, the way to do that was to, um, you know, find friends who had moved, all over the country and go try to play like house shows and play some of my new songs that I've been writing. Um, and as soon as I had that idea, instead I got offered a job at a studio, uh, for six months, kind of as the, the errand boy and got a weekend gig in Memphis playing cover songs and was getting paid decently for that and, and started recording with the second engineer at the studio kind of when everybody else had gone home and put out an EP and then a friend of a friend gave it to this guy and nationally booked college shows and uh, went to showcase for them. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm playing community colleges all over the country by myself in, in my Volvo station wagon. And, you know, things just kind of started to steamroll from there. Now, where in the midst of all of this do you meet Ellie? And when, how long is it? Do you guys meet before you guys start working together musically? Does that kind of evolve after the relationship begins? Or how, how does that all kind of roll into the story of you becoming a musician? Well, I, it, 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 it's all kind of intertwined because I met Ellie when I was a sophomore in college before I even wrote songs. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, but, but, but we both loved music and, and I played music and would sit around and play other people's songs. And then... Um, so when I started writing songs two years later and I got kind of my first show, I got, I convinced her to get up and sing with me three or four songs. So she, she's literally been there from the very beginning. Um, but there was not a romantic interest on her, on her side until much later. And, um, but, but she still was kind of a creative, uh, muse. Um, I, you know, anytime I had new songs, I'd play them for her, see what she thought. Cause and then she had a good ear and, and had such a, um, you know, great ability with harmonies and kind of song ideas that, that I was always interested in her opinion. And so secretly I, I had other ambitions with her that had nothing to do with music, obviously. <laughs> of course. Um, but it, that, that's kind of how it all started. Now, was she, was she playing music herself? I've, I didn't actually realize, I knew her name for the longest time, but I didn't realize until I was working on this who her dad was because my dad is a huge Petra fan. And so I knew the name oh, for wow. Bannister. Oh, from, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My, that was my dad's a preacher's son. So like, I grew up in that Amy Grant and Petra and all these records that her dad made, like, helped make. So when I, when I found that yeah. out, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize what a small world this had become for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty small world. That's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So was she was she musically inclined when you met her? Uh, she was, but only like casually as a hobby. You know, I mean, she was a, a education major and actually taught school for a couple of years um, before we got married and then for our first year of marriage. So 
um, her interest in music was, was mainly just as a fan and, and as somebody who kind of did it as a hobby. Um, and even well into, you know, her quitting her job and coming to the band, she didn't really start thinking about doing her own thing until, you know, that was 2006. And it was probably 2012 before she started thinking about her kind of her own writing and stuff. So it so, was her, her, her kind of deciding to do music was a much slower marinade. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily her uh, primary goal for the longest time. Right, right. All right, all right. So where do you, where do the rest of the neighbors come from, or at least like that initial group for that put out the first record as Drew and the Neighbors? Where where do they come from? Yeah, well, pretty much still intact except for one person. So um, Nathan Duggar, the guitar player, and I met when I first moved back to Memphis after college. When I was working at that studio, I had a couple of gigs around town, <clears throat> and uh, an old friend said told me that there was a 17 year old kid who was just a freak musician and was looking for, for, you know, looking for people to play with. And so I called him up and we went to his parents' house in his garage, like you do when you're in high school. And I'm 22 at the time. He's 17 or 18. And I play through some songs and he just kind of picks up and starts playing along as I'm going. And I'm just like, okay, this kid's really good. And that was, you know, 2004, 2003. And Nathan's been playing with me ever since. So um, that's how he, he he came about. Then he went to school after that year. He graduated high school and went to Belmont University in Nashville. And so he was in school. And on the weekends, he would come tour with me when I, whenever I had shows. And <clears throat> two years later, I moved to Nashville right before Ellie and I got married, about a week before we got married. And... I uh, had had a random assortment of guys playing with me in Memphis, but nothing official. And uh, so I moved, moved to Nashville, met a guy at Third and Lindsley, which is a kind of famous venue here in town. We we were opening for a guy named David Mead. It was just me and Ellie and Nathan, no drummer. And this guy walks up to me and says, hey, do you have a drummer? I'd love to audition for you. Well, I, I thought that was hilarious. It's my one to audition for me. <laughs> you know, yeah. It wasn't like a, a real lucrative gig. For them but anyway so we needed a, a band for a show a couple months later and this time i was mostly touring just acoustic almost entirely acoustic so but i had a big show come up that i needed a full band for so i ended up calling that guy who gave me his car his name was john Radford. he's a drummer and then uh, nathan had a friend from Belmont university rich Brunsfield, to put the bass and so they came over to our house we sat in the living room this is 2006 and uh, they were incredible. I just felt like something came together in a way that I never had happened before with the guys I've been playing with back home. And that was kind of the initial neighbors. And uh, the only one who's not playing with anymore is John, the drummer. About four years ago, he kind of decided he wanted to do some different things. And so now we have a new drummer named John Womble. And uh, when Ellie left the band um, two years ago, to kind of focus on her stuff and, and being home with a kid um, who brought on a keys player. His name is Grant Pittman. And so there's, there's five of us, the three kind of original, three of the four original neighbors are still, still up there with me, you know, 12 years in. Wow, that's that's really impressive. Yeah, we, we have a good time. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of love and respect between each other. So. I want to ask a little bit about, you know, kind of your early approach to getting your name out there. Because one thing I've always kind of admired and been so curious about is that, 
the, you seem to exist in like just outside of the mainstream bubble, but yet you have such a diehard and committed fan base and you've been building steam for like 12 years at this point. Um, and it seems like, mm-hmm. you know, you have like a lot of it seems to have started with heavy touring and then licensing has been something that has been kind of prevalent in your career from like the really early records. You were getting placements pretty early on. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Like, how did you get into the licensing world? Because that has kind of become something where I, I, I think there's like a dozen shows last year that I heard a Drew Holcomb song in, and I was like, this guy knows how to get yeah. his music out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's definitely been a huge part of our story. Uh, you know, the, it's actually pretty funny that the original placement for us on TV, uh, I just put out a record called Washington Blues, 2005, and I was, MySpace was all the rage. I mean, that was, that was the way to get her. I mean, there was even a point in time where people were telling you, you don't even use email anymore. It's all MySpace, you know? And thankfully I did not adhere to that advice. Um, but, but that was kind of the way you reach your fans. And so, you know, every day, just like you do with your email, you'd go on and check your inbox. And I had this message on MySpace from a guy in LA who said, you know, I'm a fan of your music. I have friends that are in the licensing world. I'd love to send them your stuff. Here's how it works. If I get something placed, if you get something placed, I just want 15% of of the money if there is any. So, you know, I had nothing to lose at the time, and so I said sure. And six months, I, I didn't didn't hear anything back from him or anything. Six months later, I get a, a contract in the mail with a thing saying they're going to use my song on a show called Army Wives on Lifetime, and I uh, funny story about it. I was obviously super thrilled. So we were watching Army Wives and I was, you know, really excited about it. And my very Southern and very proper grandmother calls me about 20 minutes after the show ends. She said, Drew, I saw your song on that show. I don't like that show. You need to get it off that show. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And uh, that was pretty, pretty funny kind of uh, generational divide there. But uh, that kind of just turned i mean one and you know that was, that was the first one i had and then i didn't have another one for 18 months and then i uh, put out another record passenger seat and got three or four placements off of that and then um by this point i uh, signed with a small label called dual tone records for a one record deal on an album called chasing someday they had someone in-house doing that and that's kind of when it all really came together they got a big placement on the on the on parenthood um oh, okay yeah that's a that big <laughs> Ended up paying for our our uh, our van, which is at the time we didn't have a way to tour. We had no vehicle except for <laughs> yeah. my, my Volvo. Okay. So we were like borrowing cars and renting vans, and so just to kind of talk about how the how the heavy touring and the sync thing worked together, like the money from the sync is really what funded our records and allowed us to stay independent. And yeah, like you said, now I mean. I can't even, honestly, and this is not, I, I hope this doesn't come across in any way with any sort of like arrogance, but I, I don't really even, I can't keep track, um, which is an awesome problem to have. But part of that is just we've had put out so many records, um, you know, there's like seven albums out there. And for some, something about our music kind of resonates with the, the TV supervisor people. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think our last album had, uh, medicine in the last year has had close to 20 placements. It's crazy. I see. I hear it's, it everywhere. It's, it's, it's an interesting world because sometimes it's like, oh, it's 400 bucks to be on some show on MTV, or it can be a whole lot more money than that for a commercial. And it's just a, 
a part of the business that I never really even like thought about as I was planning on doing this. I thought it was all touring and all record sales. And then to have this kind of extra wing of, of exposure. And, and we certainly have met people all over the country and especially when we tour over in Europe, who that's how they found their music was through TV. That's so crazy. And I, you know, it is, it is such a cool little promotional help tool because like that, that's happening without you having to really do anything. Like you can work on touring or writing new music and then somewhere in the world, there's an episode of the middle on that has one of your songs play. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's kind of crazy. And I, I hear it all the time. And it's one of those things in the last couple of years, I've really kind of tuned into licensing a lot more. And like that side of the business interests me so much. And you're you're one of the artists that I, I hear again and again. And I'm always like, man, that guy just like, he cracked the code with music supervisors because they just seem to love your music. <laughs> yeah. The other the crazy thing, though, is that really two things. One, I have a lot of friends who write for TV and they literally sit down and get like, pitch sheets about the shows and what's the scene and how to write for that scene. And I've never done that. Uh, I've literally just make a record of 10 or 12 songs every two years, every year and a half, send that in to the people who do our pitch stuff and then stuff comes in. So I've been fortunate enough uh, to be able to kind of get, you know, have the, have that response at TV without ever having to fish for it. And that's a huge thing for me because I definitely like I'm, a, I'm pretty, um, you know, I, I don't write with other people very often. I uh, didn't sign with a label because I'm very, I'm very kind of strict about artistic freedom and control of my own stuff. And to, so to be able to have TV do that has been really uh, such a bonus for us. And the second thing that's really cool about it is, you know, as radio has consolidated, there's, there's just less and less and less room for uh, artists like myself on terrestrial radio. So uh, in, in a lot of ways, what radio was for artists in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, TV is for people like me. Um, it's the way that we get a national audience, you know, and uh, so definitely real, real, uh, real grateful for that. Just to backtrack for a second, do you think, I know that you, you've put out a lot of your records on vinyl and stuff. Will the world see a day when Washed in Blue gets a re-release? Uh, yes. Now that we've started this record club, okay. you can count on it. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know when. We don't, want, we don't want that record club to be all Drills and Neighbors releases, but I, I think we'll probably try to do maybe at least two a year. And, uh yeah. We'll dig into the back catalog for that. I got, I got in, I got in around Good Light, so I was like just a little too late to get some of the early records, like hard copies. And now I'm just, now I just kind of keep an eye out whenever I'm shopping around online. I'm like, maybe I'll just find someone who's getting rid of their copy, secretly hoping that you'll just print it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, I do. You mentioned the creative freedom thing a minute ago, so I wanted to talk about getting your own imprint label going. Uh, Magnolia is what is the imprint's called. So what, what's the significance of that name because i know the song magnolia that you released are they connected in some way yeah they are um ellie and i is kind of where our, our relationship kind of turned from a friendship into a, into a romance was uh in this magnolia tree that she had told me about that some folks had climbed up in the top of this thing and hung up all these nets and go climb up on top of the tree and sit there and look out over the city uh sadly it's since uh since then uh, the, the tree died, and, the, and, the, and obviously the nets have been removed. But 
this was like 2003, 2004. And, uh, yeah, so that's the significance of that. That's kind of, that was kind of a, a benchmark moment in our relationship. So I started the, the, the label that was appropriate. Now, I, I, I think good light, I, I love medicine. Good. Light. I think they're, I think they're your two strongest records, but I think there's like a turning point in your songwriting. I don't know. Something for me changes when it gets to good light. I love all the records, but in my mind, when you get to good light, there's, I don't know if it's that you get more confident in your songwriting, but it definitely seems like there's, there's a little bit of a turn from like what was coming on the previous releases to the sound and kind of approach to good light. Did anything change for you between those two records? Do you feel differently about that album? Uh, yeah, it's a very obvious change for me is I stopped co-writing. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, and now as a part of that was a confidence thing. I, I finally felt like I knew what I wanted to say and how to say it. So, um, the only people I co-write with now are, um, you know, my wife and my bandmates. So before that, I was writing with a lot of like, you know, country writers who were friends and um, other artists who were friends, and, and got some really great stuff out of that. But what really turned it for me was the two songs that were the most kind of publicly re- well received off of Chasing Someday were the two songs I wrote by myself, which is Live Forever and. Uh, fire and dynamite and so I thought well maybe there's something to this and I should just trust my gut more than I have in the past and uh, thankfully I, I did that and ended up being a good instinct yeah when uh when uh your PR person when Lindsay reached out to me about this interview she was like asking me about how familiar I was with you beyond medicine and I was like oh I know everything but I could probably sing I could probably write wine we drink with my eyes closed at this point because I've, I've heard it so many times and she was like <laughs> she was like oh my god that's my favorite song <laughs> and I was like oh okay awesome. so so we connect that's that's a song that I find I whenever I try to introduce people that's definitely one of those like mixtape songs that I'm always like oh no this is this is the one even my my fiance that's the song that kind of sold her she enjoyed medicine and then I was like but wait till you hear I mean just this song comes from such a real place that feels relatable for us and our like Midwest heritage. I don't know. Something about that track just spoke yeah. to us. <laughs> well, I'll give you an interesting story kind of that relates to what you're saying and then also to the question about the, the songwriting process. So when I was writing that particular song, I went over to a friend's house and he's an artist and um musician guy. And typically in the past what I would have done is played it for him and kind of like really wanted some affirmation or some thoughts about how to do it differently and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I knew the song and I was really proud of it and confident of it. At the time, it was, I had not kind of imagined it as a duet. It was just, just me singing. So, so I'm sitting in the living room and I play the song. And he says, man, that's a really good song. He's like, you know, I don't know. I take the chorus. Maybe you should do it. And I just interrupted him and I said, I'm not asking for your opinion. I just wanted to play the song. The song's <laughs> finished. And there was just kind of a uh, uh, like you said, was it confidence? It was definitely confidence. I finally realized that I had, um, you know, when I when I trusted my gut, that that ended up typically being right. And wine we drink was definitely a song in that category. Well, well, I feel like a thing about it is, you know, you you have. I don't know. It's like you're at this point in your life now. Where you are married, and I know that now you have a kid, you have a child, and like you write these songs that come from a place that still there's a little bit there's a heartache to some, certain songs but there's also 
I don't know. There's you can sense the true emotion behind the love songs, if that makes sense. Where it's like, okay, I know that I know that he has a wife and that they're happy and that he they sometimes collaborate. And so there's there's this extra layer of believability to it, as opposed to like just hearing a love song on the radio, where you're like, I wonder if that's about anyone in particular. I think when when your music plays, it's it seems so clear that you're writing about a specific person or a specific moment that it kind of resonates in a different way. Yeah, that's definitely definitely a big part of. <laughs> yeah, my, my process is, is it's, it's pretty personal. Um, one one thing that some of the writers that I love the most, I feel like the most personal stuff is oddly enough sometimes the most universal. Yeah. Um, you know, because you can really kind of relate to the particularities of someone else's story and find your find yourself in the in the middle of that. And, um, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's 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 what it's what, it's what I strive for. So happy to hear that that's where it lands on you. And uh, well, I guess we should get into the. I guess we should get into medicine at this point. We've been talking about all the other records for so long. Um, medicine came out about about a year ago now. We're getting close to the year anniversary of it. How do you feel a year in about you know how the records performed and what it's done for you as an artist? Uh, it's it's been by far and away our most successful album, um, just on a practical level. Sold the most copies. It's had the most, like you said, kind of sync and and. I feel like it, I'm really, really proud of the record. I'm especially proud of the songwriting and um, the songwriting and the the way we recorded it. We tracked it very differently than we had the other records. We recorded it all live, even like acoustic guitar and vocal at the same time live, and just really kind of wanted to have like to capture kind of a moment in time uh, instead of trying to layer the sonics in such a way that you kind of you know sand off some of the human edges when ellie left the band at the end of the good light tour to stay home and do her do her thing i, I felt a really healthy but pretty intense pressure that i needed to make a, my best record and uh just because i think there was certainly some disappointment from certain kind of segments of our fan base to find out that ellie was kind of taking a, a much more of a backseat role and uh, so it, it put a, a, a good amount of kind of heat on me to, to write and make uh, you know, a really great record. And, um, but at the same time, uh, we were at a place in our life where, you know, we have, we have a kid, we've got great friends. Uh, we're walking, you know, when you're in your early 30s, you got friends walking through real life stuff that kind of makes your career anxiety feel small. Um you know, whether it's broken marriages or people losing people they care about or, or you know, life-threatening illness. And that's been something that's been kind of a reality for us in the last two or three years. And so uh, it kind of sobered the process and let me kind of engage it for what it is, which is making music to help myself and other people find their place in their, in their way in the world and uh, and to soundtrack that process. And so there was a, a, an incredible amount of freedom in making medicine. And I think that that shows both kind of in the way it sounds and also in the songwriting, or at least that's my hope. And it seems like based on the reactions we've gotten from old fans and new fans alike, that that, 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 that has been the case. 
I, I would have to agree. I think what, what the first thing that really stuck out to me is that there's almost a perfect balance between songs that are kind of sung from that first person perspective of I, my, and such, and then songs that have a lot of we's in them, where uh, you kind of find a good balance between like this super almost introvertedness on certain songs, like Ain't Nobody Got It Easy, and then Shine Like Lightning has like this big, boisterous kind of universal appeal to it. And I think that this is the first record where you've really nailed that balance. Yeah, yeah. You never I, I, when you're writing songs, you don't intend to, to to do things a certain way like that. But um, it, like for me, I always name a record when I'm finished with it. Okay, well, interesting. You know, and, and uh, that 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 kind of first person narrative of, of yeah, the kind of internal look, and then the and then the kind of communal singing, uh, like here we go, shine like lightning, um, tightrope. Tyrope's kind of a mixture of two because the, the verses are that are kind of that introspective first person, and then the choruses are kind of directed specifically at you know uh, someone. And so I, uh, I I definitely you know write one song at a time and don't think about them as a whole. But um, looking back on the record, it's fun to kind of see how where you are in your life translates into what you write and. So then, therefore, there's there's obviously like com- kind of commonalities between songs, and that's really what, in a lot of ways, makes a record a record, and not just a, you know, a random assortment of songs. Yeah, it's it's interesting that how you describe taking the one song at a time approach, because your your albums do end up being such se- seemingly very cohesive. So it, it would seem like you wrote them all kind of with one idea in mind or one thing. So it's kind of interesting that you say it's more of a one at a time process. Yeah. And there's obviously like a lot of, for me, there's always, especially with Good Light, there's always a lot of fat to trim. I think I wrote like 50 songs for the Good Light record. Oh, wow. I actually only ended up using like 12 of them. So um, <laughs> you can kind of find, like the way it works for me is you kind of find the, the two or three songs that, that are your absolute favorites. And then you kind of build, when you're picking the rest of the songs, you kind of build around those. So for, for Medicine, that was um, American Beauty and uh here we go and um shine like lightning okay okay that makes sense uh and you you did a lot of touring last year i know you did the need to breathe tour which was great and uh you started the first half of your headlining tour was in the fall of last year and then you have the second half is coming up here and starts in february is that right yeah that's right all right how how okay so how is the uh, I mean, how is doing a headline spot for this, like when you went out with Need to Breathe, was it clear that like the reaction to medicine was already kind of big and then kind of rolls into your headlining tour where people are like definitely ready to see a Drew Holcomb headlining, headlining tour? I was surprised you didn't start with a headlining run right after medicine came did. out. We did. Okay. We did, actually. Yes, yeah, so we did uh, February, March, and April. We did about 40 headline shows. Um, oh, wow. Including, including the Ryman and... Um, there was a lot of stuff in the South, like Georgia Theater and Athens. And, yeah. Um, and then we went to Texas, and, and, and it actually closed in Texas and Dallas. Um, okay. So we started, it started, it was kind of weird because we started with the headline, and then we went into the opening thing for four months, and then back into headline. And it, it's interesting, the first headline tour was great and incredible, but it also still had so much, like you're just kind of dusting yourself off the cobwebs and trying to fit the yeah. new songs into your set. So, you know, like I know that uh, Live Forever always works. I know that Tennessee always works. I know how to 
there's these songs from older records that you can count on to kind of, if the show feels like it's, you're losing the crowd, you can, you know, put one of those out there and you know you're going to get them back usually. So, and then on the Compadres tour, it's so different because you have 35 minutes, much bigger audiences, you know, most of whom know you, but not all. I mean, it wasn't a typical opening slot in that it was four bands and we, you know, we weren't thankfully the very first and we were the second. Um, and it was a lot of everybody on stage knows each other. And there's a lot of camaraderie and people coming on and off the stage together and felt kind of like a family, family band atmosphere in some ways. And, but you're also kind of limited to like, you know, you got a strict 35 minutes. So you kind of end up playing the same set almost every night. And after a while, you, you just really want to go back out on the road as a headliner, which was <laughs> great because then we, we did. So um, my favorite part about the fall tour was the last 30 minutes before the encore, we just took requests every night. So, you know, it, we had no idea what was coming, and that was just was really fun and really scary every night, but made every night feel kind of unique and special. Can fans expect the same thing on this upcoming tour? Oh, yeah, for sure. It was our favorite <laughs> part of it, so we're definitely going to do it again. <laughs> I don't get to see you guys till you roll through Minneapolis in April, so I'm a little jealous of everyone that comes in the first like six weeks of that tour. Uh, we'll be we'll be ready to go by the varsity. That's such a great spot. It, it, that'll be a fun night. Well, that's great to hear, man. I do want to ask, uh, like outside of music, I know you you do a lot of philanthropy work, and I'm wondering if maybe have you have you given thought to starting your own nonprofit, or do you just like being involved in other things when time allows? Yeah, I mean, there's so many great things. Uh, you know, I'm on the very old end of being a millennial. And I think, you know, I'm like a year and a half in. I think it started in 1980. I'm like 82. And I, do, I love a lot of these, like, generational study things. And so much millennialism is about, like, believing in these great causes, but then kind of judging the old models of how they're done. And um, I kind of like to push back on that and say like there's actually really great organizations doing really great work and for me to create my own own organization that would require new staff that would take more money out of the field you know i think in a lot of ways would be a fool's errand but so and there's also some things we care about that are that are not necessarily connected that it's easier to you know kind of so for instance you know i did this festival in, in memphis and we raised money for Memphis causes. So St. Jude is one of them. The other one is the Stax Music Academy, which is the old Stax record labels and now music school. Um, and then on the road, we support things like World Vision um, because they have uh, a great apparatus for, for using the road as a tool to reach kids all over the world with food and education and healthcare. Um, you know, and then we do lots of benefit concerts and things for other, for, for different folks that we, you know, work with. I'm, I'm currently working on a charity golf tournament with uh, IJM, which is International Justice Mission. They work in the kind of anti-trafficking world. And, um, you know, I honestly just grew up, my parents were really involved in a lot of different nonprofit stuff. And just kind of it, it, in my dad's point of view, it was like the only way to fight cynicism is to get off your ass and do something. You know, um, instead of just sitting on the couch and, and you know, complaining about the way of the world. Um, so uh, I just learned a lot from that. And, and honestly, 
being being on stage is such a great platform. You have a voice and people listen to it, and you have to be uh, thoughtful and wise about how you implement that. But uh, there's just so many great organizations, and honestly, it's one of the hardest parts of the job is that we probably get an email to our management or booking agent every day, literally every day, asking us to come perform at a charity event. I mean, we could be gone for a full year and do 365 charity events and never be home. <laughs> so you, you, you have to say no a lot, which is which is tough. But, you know, still got to pay the bills the regular way and, and uh, keep, keep food on the table here at home. Uh, definitely. I think, I mean, I think it's impressive that you do as much as you do, because as you said, you have a voice and a platform and it's surprising how many people don't really take advantage of that in the way you do. And I don't know. I just, I re- really respect that you give back. I think it's awesome. I was just curious because I saw how many different programs you were involved in. I was like, I wonder if he ever wants to start his own, but I think how you tackle it, it makes sense. And you did mention the music festival, which I, I am on the mailing list for, and I'm very excited to find out the 2016 details for Moon River Fest. So if you'd like to just spill them all right now, I'd be okay with that. I'll tell you, it's going to be great. Be great. <laughs> that's, I like that. It's going to be, it's going to be good. No, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think the festival, the festival is really exciting and I, I wish more artists kind of had their own festival like that. And I haven't been able to attend yet, but it maybe, maybe 2016 will be the year. I mean, if you say it's going to be great. Yeah, no, it is. I think a lot of the reason artists don't do it is it's a huge pain in the butt. Uh, really glad we do it, but it is, uh, it's incredibly cumbersome, time consuming and, um, and, you know, for, for all for, for a one or two day kind of excitement, but I think that the payoff has been awesome and thankfully I have a management team who kind of saw the vision and uh, were able to, you know, jump in on it and, and help and kind of be the, the ones getting all the work done. So it takes a village, you know, to, to do something like that. But it we're really, really glad that people have responded well to it. Yeah, it is. It isn't. You do do a lot of things. It's kind of impressive that you find any free time. <laughs> it's all about it's all about the team behind you, you know. Yeah, it's all uh, about that team. <laughs> I, I, I just come up with the, with the with the ideas, and then you know, okay. Paul and, and my manager and his folks do most of the legwork. <laughs> all right, shout out to them then. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, do you think uh, I, I hate to ask this? I'm sure it's the one question everyone asks, but do you think uh, after this headline tour, you're going to get into the studio later this year? Um, I'll definitely we'll get to see at some point this year. I think um, first thing on the docket is to is to is to get back on the songwriting train and and start thinking about kind of um, you know what what's next in terms of what I want to say and and how how I want to say it. So there's a there's no rush. I mean we've put out a record every two years for a decade now, and I feel like if it takes us six months longer this time. You know, everybody else give me a little bit of leeway there. Uh, at least that's what I hope. But I definitely, we have, we definitely have plans of uh, of new music and and time in the studio. Just nothing concrete at this point. I, I would also be happy with a with another live recording. I do like the live recordings you've released so far. I think. Well, uh, I uh, I think cool. you're you're probably on a on a good <laughs> on a good fox hunt there. So <laughs> fair enough. I won't, fair enough. I won't say any more, but. Uh, uh, 
you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of the way Need to Breathe does it. They have their fan club, and every month they just release a different live recording. That's kind of a cool way that they oh, approach that's cool. it. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Yeah. yeah, those guys are great. I always promote whenever it's one. It's one of those things. Whenever I talk about like you, or I know you've toured with Ben Rector several times. He he and I have talked a mm-hmm. bunch. Of, he's going to be on the show very soon too. Um, but I'm always cool. I always end up kind of talking about the three of you anytime one comes up. I'm like, oh, I gotta circle the circle the wagons. Yeah, we're definitely all all. Uh, you know, huge fans of each other professionally, but also just really good buddies. That's and great, um, I, I can't say enough great about Ben and Need to Breathe. Their, their work ethic is impeccable. Their you know artistic kind of nose is is really really strong and um, a lot of fun to tour with. Yeah, you guys have each in your own way kind of carved a unique little path for yourselves in the music industry. Need to Breathe has the label backing, but everyone still kind of has kind of done things on their own terms and musically, which is really impressive. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, man, I, I appreciate you so much for coming to talk to me. As you, you already know that we My chose pleasure. Medicine as one of our big records of 2015, and I, I still listen to it every day. I, I have the vinyl. I appreciate it. I need to I need to complete my Drew Holcomb vinyl collection. I I saw that you have the uh, the record store day seven inches on your store. I got to order one of those today. I, I still don't have yeah, it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> all, right, all right, man. And uh, people can join. You have so many things to promote all at once. You have a tour coming up in February. That's that's the big thing. Yeah, that's the big thing. Um, the the Magnolia Record Club is a pretty cool thing people can get involved in. That's on your web. That's on your web store. Mm-hmm. All right. What what am I missing? You've got uh, medicines out now. It's well, on vinyl. It's on uh, CD. The festival. That's the that's the other big one. But we'll we'll probably be announcing uh, hopefully sometime in the next uh, six weeks, kind of the the dates and details of uh, of that. So pretty excited right. about it. And people can sign up online. You can find the Moon River Festival website. You can get email notifications when stuff goes on sale. Yeah, that's right. I think I think that covers everything. You you know you you seem to be like a spokesperson for the state of Tennessee in your own way. So Tennessee is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean at this yes, point, man, is. they might as well name you a spokesperson. You've got at least more than one song that references the state. At this point, you're you know you are. Well, I will I will say this: we made this poster um, uh, around you know Thanksgiving. We had some of the lyrics from from the Tennessee song, and. Um, it went on sale, and about three hours after it went on sale, my uh, manager called. He said, "Hey, the governor's office just ordered five posters." So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know, that, that, there you go. It, you know, spokesman in a way. Spokesman in a so, way. I, that's fine. I think you can claim that. I think you can claim it. For yeah. Five. Po- if it was just one poster, maybe not, but five. That shows commitment. Yeah, it's it's a big order. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a big order. Well, that's great, man. And that poster is that's on the web store. We'll just plug that real quick. It's a cool poster. I've seen it. It's it's really nice. <laughs> Uh, I'll see you in April, and you're going to be on tour from February to. Is the tour go through all of April? Does it go into May or just April? Uh, it goes into April, and then we're doing some festivals uh, kind of throughout the summer. So uh, it's kind of random, but um, we'll, we'll be kind of bouncing around different parts of the country, um, just kind of doing random summer festivals as well. So. Oh, great! All right, the, man. The tour, that the great. tour itself kind of closes out at the end of April. Okay, that sounds great. Well, maybe maybe when you roll through Minneapolis, we'll we'll catch up and we can kind of like cap this with like an end of tour. Be like, what what's what's happened since we spoke last? Sounds good. All right, man. Well, you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. All right, thanks, James. Take care. You too. I have a tendency to laugh at all the wrong moments. Sometimes I forget 
the words to my own songs I'm not the silent type or an exit sign or a yellow brick road and you are the one thing that I know it's in the wine we drink dirty dishes in the kitchen sink and the lights go out till the sun comes up we are not alone it's in the miles we drive never having to say goodbye it's the things we tell each other without saying a word you are the one thing